In the opening chapter to his masterpiece, The Great Gatsby, F. Scott Fitzgerald had his narrator Nick Haraway suggest that personality is an unbroken series of successful gestures. If that is correct, then let us ask, what makes a cinematic genius? An unbroken series of masterpieces? If that is true, and it will be a more concrete proposal than Fitzgerald's, then Krzysztof Kieślowski resides in that ultra-rarefied atmosphere, alongside the likes of Yasujiro Ozu, Robert Bresson, Louis Bunuel, Satyajit Rai, Ingmar Bergman, Chantal Ackerman, and Abbas Kiarostami. Warsaw on the 27th of June 1941, a mere eight months after the Nazis had invaded Poland. When the war ended four years later, Kieślowski then found himself living under communist rule. Which meant it wasn't really until the breakup of the Soviet Union and the end of the Warsaw Pact in 1991 that he was able to operate and move freely as an artist. Prior to that, although his first six features had secured festival screenings outside of the Soviet bloc, international distribution was extremely limited. So his real breakthrough came in 1989, when Guglielmo Baraghi, the director of the Venice Film Festival, took the unprecedented step of screening, in its entirety, Decalogue, Kieslowski's 10-hour television series that used the Ten Commandments as its unifying subject. Until then, whatever reputation Kieslowski had in the West was as a social and political filmmaker. But with the Venice screenings of Decalogue, and with the fall of the Berlin Wall barely 60 days later, audiences finally recognised his real themes. Fate, coexistence and coincidence. Or, to use the title of one of his earlier films, Blind Chance. If the theme of coexistence seems a little nebulous, let us consider his 1991 film, The Double Life of Veronique. There, two women share the same name and the same birthday, but, born thousands of miles apart, have never met. And yet, they come to experience an enigmatic kinship. Then there is Three Colours, a trilogy of films, blue, white and red, unified by the colours of the French flag, exploring the principles of liberty, equality and fraternity. Although Kieślowski had announced his retirement from directing after the release of Red in 1994, he had already done so on a number of occasions prior. So when, in 1995, he announced he was embarking on a new work, an adaptation of Dante's Divine Comedy, there was every reason to believe that Kieślowski's unbroken series of masterpieces would continue. But on March 13, 1996, he died of heart failure, and so his final project was never realised. Instead, Red now serves as the fitting conclusion to a career that ended when he was just 54. Here is Juliette Binoche, who played Julie Vignon de Courcy in Blue. The first time we met, it was all about philosophy questions about life, death, you know, immediately, without, without a second, it was like that. And at the time, he didn't speak that much of English. So I felt a little frustrated because we had, there was a translator. And I, I liked to have direct contact, of course. And uh, so then in blue, he was ready. <laughs> Given the command Kieślowski exercised over the medium, it should not be a surprise that in making the trilogy, he was extending an innovative narrative structure. Once upon a time, a long time ago, when we were little children, we were told stories that unfolded in the same way. They began with a setup, progressed to the complication, before resolving with all pertinent issues neatly tied up. 
Such a structure relies heavily on causality. Every turn is motivated so nothing happens by chance. Each action results in a reaction that in turn produces a forward momentum which propels the characters towards a climactic showdown. No matter whether these stories unfold over millions of years or merely 90 minutes, Stanley Kubrick's 2001 or Alfonso Cuaron's Gravity, they do so chronologically. An alternative structure would be the flashback, where events are reordered to create a new causality, such as Brian Singer's The Usual Suspects or Michel Gondry's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Then there are plots that generate a timeline where you don't really have flashbacks per se, but instead the story uses a non-linear structure. There the events are linked not by cause and effect, but by similarity or contrast between the scenes, which through temporal refashioning suddenly runs them one after the other, so that by the end the theme has taken clear precedent over the plot. Examples would include Sergei Parajanov's The Colour of Pomegranates, Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather Part II, Andrei Tarkovsky's Mirror, Terence Davies' Distant Voices Still Lives, Stephen Daldry's The Hours, and Gus Van Sant's Elephant. Then there are films that thread together several plots that appear to be unrelated until a single event provides their connection. In 2005, Alyssa Court, writing in Film Comment magazine, coined the term hyperlink cinema to describe the multilinear strands that can move a film in any direction, forwards, backwards, sideways, but always around a central feudal force, a single organising device that pivots everything that occurs. It sounds very innovative and modern, Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction or Alejandro Iñárritu's Babel, but it can be traced back to 1962 with Kanchen Junga, written and directed by Sajidit Rai. Unfolding in real time over 100 minutes, it follows a wealthy Bengali family on holiday in Darjeeling, all to show how our lives are intertwined. In Kishlovsky's Three Colours, fate, coincidence and coexistence delicately emerge from single lives to embroider an emphatic theme. While each film stands on its own, there really is only one order in which to view them, the order in which they were released, blue, white and red. Because it is only in the final moments of red that everything comes together, and Kishlovsky hyperlinks the strands of fate, coincidence and coexistence. Here is Julie Delpy, who played Dominique Vidal in White. He was also, uh, as a director, very obsessed with details. I would say obsessive in a good way. So I asked him, how do you want me to approach the character? And he's like, well, what does she make you think of? The first idea you have when you read her. And I was like, well, she reminds me of um, this cat I had when I was a little girl who was literally possessed. She was a monster. She would attack people. And he was like, that's exactly what I want. Don't think of anything else. Don't try to look any further than that. I was like, okay, that's great. It is important to note that while Blue, White and Red were released over a 12-month period between 1993 and 1994, the same time frame saw political turmoil emerging in Poland. Yet, despite the tensions in his homeland, Kieślowski expressed an utter indifference, embracing instead developments happening in Western Europe. November the 1st of that year saw the ratification of the Maastricht Treaty, an agreement which led to a European-wide integration. Coexistence? Hmm. A full two years prior, Kishlovsky had gone into production on his trilogy, which meant he had written the scripts even earlier. Coincidence? Fate? Connectiveness was important to Kishlovsky, and extended far beyond the trilogy. Already in blind chance, he had explored the different possible life paths of the same person. And the central choice faced by Veronique in The Double Life 
was an embellishment of a brief episode in the ninth chapter of Decalogue. Such connectedness was not just a theme in Kieślowski's films. It was in his working life as well. For the trilogy, he had collaborated with screenwriters Krzysztof Piszewicz, Anushka Holland and Edward Zabrowski. He also had the same producer, Marin Karnitz, and composer, Zbigniew Preisner. Here is Irene Jacob, who played Valentin Dussault in Red, and both roles in The Double Life of Veronique. So these two characters of Red survive, and uh, there is this moment where she turns, uh, and there is this red kind of I don't know, background. And, uh, and the, the DP said to Krzysztof Kislowski, oh, when Irene is doing the scene where she's doing the little poster for the Schwingham, why don't we do the same picture? you know, and uh, it would it will uh, have a, quite an effect. And I think it's a great effect in the film. And it's very, I love that scene actually, when the photographer is saying, more sad, more sad, which is in a way stupid for a Schwingham advert, right? <laughs> and she's like this, and she suddenly has to be sad in a big studio with the wind and the artificial light. And But it's interesting process anyway. Three clips, three actresses, letting us hear the simple but profound decision Kieślowski made to place women at the very heart of his trilogy. Other male directors had done something similar. Alfred Hitchcock had worked three times with Ingrid Bergman and Grace Kelly. Then there was Jean-Luc Godard and Anna Karina, Michelangelo Antonioni and Monica Vitti, Vittorio De Sica and Sophia Loren, Federica Fellini and Giulietta Messina, Vicente Miranda and Victoria Abril, Ingmar Bergman and Ingrid Thulin, Bebby Anderson and Liv Ullman, Wong Kar Wai and Maggie Chung. Today we still see it with Pedro Almodovar, Carmen Maurer, Cecilia Roth and Penelope Cruz. However, I don't think anyone would have blinked an eye if Kieślowski's protagonists had all been male. Yet writing the roles as female immediately deepened the meaning of liberty and equality. And by the time we get to fraternity, the themes of liberty and equality are so strong Fraternity, which we know means brotherhood, extends to both genders. And what is fraternity if not coexistence? Here is Julie Pinoche once more. When I read the script, you know, I, I was amazed in a way that he proposed me the, to play this character because of a very close friend, friend of mine had the same kind of story somehow because um, she lost her... Um, son and, and um, husband, not in a car accident, but uh, in different circumstances. And, and of course, because I helped this, this friend, you know, try to uh, come back to life somehow, I uh, was completely re related to that story because of uh, the friendship I had with this woman. So for me, my preparation was already there. In Blue, Binoche plays the widow of a composer with whom she may or may not have collaborated, if not written, his symphonic works. Obviously, Zbigniew Preiser's music plays an integral part in the film. But it is also worth noting how Kieślowski's sound designer, Jean-Claude Leroux, augments natural sounds, so they tell their own story. For instance, we don't see the automobile accident that opens blue. We only hear it.
and that sound reverberates throughout the story, emphasising Julie's trauma and her efforts to complete her late husband's anthem. Serving as counterpart to those explosive chords are the natural but highly expressive sounds of fists pounding on doors, potted plants crashing on floors, and the tearing of flesh as Julie drags her bare knuckles across rough stone. Then, just opposing all that, is the very soothing sounds of Julie swimming through water. White offers another interesting counterpoint. At the end, we see Dominique not speaking, but signalling to Carol that she wants to marry him. Carol, played by Zbigniew Samachowski, is in a prison cell, and so if Dominique were speaking, she's so far away he couldn't hear her. But it is obvious her signals are an expression of love, which paradoxically echoes the moment earlier in the film when Dominique it's better Delpy explains. I remember I had a scene where I had to have an orgasm and I scream like crazy. And I remember that after 10 seconds, he wanted me to moan a little louder. So he was like, it was his watch and be like, like making signs. Okay, now I'm supposed to moan a little louder. Then after 20 seconds, I had to moan like really loud. And then after 30 seconds, I had to scream at the top of my lungs. And finally red. It begins with Valentine making a phone call in Geneva to her boyfriend very far away in London. Later, while driving at night, Valentine accidentally knocks down and injures a dog, which turns out to belong to a retired judge, Joseph Kern, played by Jean-Louis Trottignon. Uninterested in the welfare of his pet, Kern instead spends his time listening in on his neighbour's phone calls. Later still, Valentine, again accidentally, overhears one side of a phone conversation her neighbour, Auguste, is having with his girlfriend. Auguste, played by Jean-Pierre Louis, is in a fraught relationship, and things only deteriorate when he misses another of the phone calls. Are these events connected? Is it all a coincidence? Or is fate playing a hand? Kishlowski seems to be accentuating the different ways we connect and disconnect. Modern technology, for instance the telephone, helps us overcome the great distances that sometimes separate us. Another way we overcome those distances is through automobiles, cars, motorcycles, planes, trains, helicopters. We hear all those engines layered throughout the final film, and Kishlowski delivers them to subliminally prepare us for the ferry accident that delivers the climax and hyperlink moment to the entire trilogy. I'll leave the final words to Irene Jacob. His career started uh, as a documentary filmmaker and he's done many, many documentaries. And he said that if he stopped doing documentaries is that because what really interested him finally was filming something very intimate in people. And he felt he didn't have the right to film these people when it was their real story. And he would rather have actors that were just acting. But he realized that it was these subtle feelings he wanted to touch, these intimate feelings 
it's the intimacy within ourselves already. How do we connect with the world? You know, how do we suddenly feel we belong to something because we have see a coincidence here or because we... All these things are big forces driving us, even if they are very subtle. Thank you.